the abandoning of the hindrances, which is a prerequisite for entering the jhanas. So assuming that everybody has now abandoned their hindrances, we can proceed with the jhanas. So I'll read you what comes next in that sutta I was reading from last night, the second one in the Long Discourses of Samanyapala Sutta. Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thinking and examining, and filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so the first bit, quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, refers to the abandoning of the hindrances. And then one enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by Vitaka and Vichara. In later Buddhism, Vitaka and Vichara got redefined as initial and sustained attention to the meditation object. That's not what the words meant for the Buddha. Vitaka means thinking. It occurs fairly regularly in the suttas, and in every instance, it's thinking. Vichara originally meant wandering around. So, taking a thought and wandering around, examining it, pondering it. Okay? Uh, really, this is an example of synonymous parallelism. Uh, in Pali, if you wanted to emphasize something, you use multiple words that had similar meaning. So, Vitaka Vichara really means the first jhana has thinking and more thinking. And it's the wispy background thoughts that are there in access concentration. That's what is still happening. It, it's not gotten totally quiet. There's still a little bit going on, right? It's more of a defect than a contributing factor to the jhana. But that didn't stop the later commentators from uh, just changing what the words meant so that the new states they had discovered, which weren't the same as the states the Buddha was talking about, they could claim that they had the states the Buddha was talking about, although it's very clear they didn't have the states the Buddha was talking about, but uh, people. <laughs> All right, so enter and dwell in the first jhana, which has still got some background thinking, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion, filled with piti and sukha, born of being secluded from the hindrances. The, the hindrances aren't there, and this is what gives you the PT and Sukha. Or to put it in the way we've been talking about it, you've reached access concentration and put your attention on something pleasant, and because you don't get distracted from the pleasant, the PT and Sukha arrives. Again, the instructions for the first jhana are 
sit down, get yourself settled, put your attention on your meditation object, the breath, the body scan, the metta. And if you get distracted, when you get distracted, label the distraction, relax, and come back. Do this repeatedly until you stay back. Right? When you're with the object of meditation and thoughts are not pulling you into distraction, that's access concentration. Stay there for a bit and find a pleasant sensation. Focus on that. Do nothing else. And the pleasant sensation will turn into the PT and Sukha. You've arrived at the first job. Now it says, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by rapture and happiness. This is an advanced practice, okay? Don't try and do this when you're first getting into the jhanas. It's too much activity. Just get in the first time. Then get in the second time. Then get in and be able to sustain being in. Right? And once you got that down, then you could try and spread it. Most people find that the first jhana is the upper part of the body, say the upper torso, neck, head, maybe the entire spine, but it's not throughout the rest of the body. Sometimes people get it really strong right off the bat and it's everywhere, but most people it's more the upper part of the body, sort of centered around your face. As an advanced practice after you're skilled at getting in and staying in, if you want to try and spread the PT Sutta, then put your attention where it feels the strongest, and then move your attention to where it doesn't feel like there is any PT Sutta. You're not trying to move the PT Sutta. You don't know how to do that. You're just moving your attention. But if you move your attention, PT Sukha will follow along. Right? And then go back and then move the other arm, lower in the torso, down one leg, down the other leg. And you can get the PT Sukha feeling like it's completely uh, filling your whole body. But as I said, this is an advanced practice. It's first about getting in. And then it's about getting in and being able to sustain it for as long as you want. Ten minutes is probably max. Five minutes is fine. If the PT is really strong, you probably won't want to be there more than 30 seconds or a minute, depending on how strong it is. But you want to be able to get in and sustain it and sustain your attention on it for as long as it's comfortable, up to a maximum of we have a simile. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin, sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball so that the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused with moisture inside and out, and yet would not trickle. In the same way, one drinks deep, saturated, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. 
Okay, so the picture is fairly clear. You get a metal basin, bigger than this. Pour in some soap flakes, pour in some water, and then mix the soap flakes and water till you have a homogeneous ball of soap. The water totally permeating the soap flakes is the same as the PT suka totally permeating your body. But this also is a fairly frenetic thing. The mixing of the soap flakes and the water is not exactly calm. The first jhana is definitely not calm. The PT is a very energized state and uh, really, yeah, kind of a little too much going on. Just like the mixing of the soap flakes, there's a lot going on. So, having been in the first jhana for long enough, if it's very mild, five to ten minutes. If it's very strong, a minute. If it's super strong, maybe 30 seconds. Then you can move on to the second chakra. Further, this is a sighting of thinking and examining. One enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is accompanied by inner tranquility and unification of mind. It's without thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. One treaches steep, saturated, and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of concentration, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused with rapture and happiness. Okay, so ideally in the second jhana, the background thinking fades out. There's some more thinking, but that's kind of an ideal on a short retreat like this, and yes, two weeks is actually short. You're probably not going to get concentrated enough to get to the no-thinking state. Don't worry about it. When you're in the first jhana and you want to move to the second, what you should do is take a nice deep breath and really let the energy out as you exhale. Remember I said, as you're moving towards the first jhana, don't take a deep breath, it'll take you away. Now you're in the first jhana and you want to move away from it, take a deep breath and let the energy out on the exhale. That should calm the PT, but still leave the sukha, the joy happiness, right? First jhana, you got PT going like crazy, you got sukha in the background. You take the breath, you exhale, the PT comes down, it doesn't go away completely, but the sukha, the joy, happiness, is much more obvious, and that's where your attention goes. It says that one has inner tranquility and unification of mind. When you calm the PT, what you find is a much more tranquil experience. Right? The first with all that PT is not tranquil, but when you calm it, you've now got some tranquility. And the unification of mind is the mind really locking onto the sukha, the joy, happiness experience. The PT doesn't go completely away, it's in the background. Whereas in the first jhana, it might be manifesting as shaking or heat, sit up really straight, 
In the second jhana, maybe there's a little rocking, a little swaying, something like that, as opposed to the really active manifestation in the first jhana. In the sukha, well, the sukha is joy or happiness, however it manifests for you. It can be like it's your birthday, and your friend gives you a present, and you open it up, and it's like, Oh, wow, he's one of one of these. This is so cool. That kind of happiness, right? <laughs> it may not be that strong, but it's possible for it to be that strong. But whatever degree of happiness that shows up, that's where your focus goes. And so now you want to be able to maintain the happiness with a little background PT for, well, at least five to ten minutes, and maybe even better, get good enough, you could maintain it for ten to fifteen minutes. Don't try and crank up the intensity of the happiness too much, because if you do, the peaky pops back up, and now you're back up in the first genre. So what you want, actually, is moderate happiness and strong one-pointed focus When drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness, born of concentration now, the concentration of the first jhana. So that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the rapture and happiness. Okay, so there's a sense of dropping down and going from first jhana to second jhana. Dropping is like from your face to your heart. Most people describe the second jhana as sort of emanating from the heart center. If you want to spread the sukha, then you put your attention on wherever it seems strongest, and then move your attention to wherever it's not there, just like you did in the first jhana. But once again, it's an advanced practice. First, you got to find the second jhana. Then you got to find it repeatedly. Then you got to find it and be able to stay in it for an extended period of time, like five, 10, 15 minutes. And once you can do that, then you can try spreading it. Right. We have a simile. Suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet for water from the east, west, north, or south nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain. Yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench deep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake, so there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a rapture and happiness born of concentration so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused with rapture and happiness. Okay, so the picture is of a lake far up in the mountains, no streams, no rain, but a spring at the bottom. And the cool, clear water from the spring comes up and completely fills the lake. This is an amazingly accurate picture of what the second jhana feels like. It's just this wellspring of happiness coming out of your heart. 
or wherever it seems to be centered. It's just filling you up. When I first learned the jhanas, jhana number two, I came and didn't read out the simile on that particular retreat. And so I'd been practicing it for a little over a year when I go on a retreat with her and she reads out the simile. I'm just blown away by how accurately it depicts my experience. And after her Dharma talk, I go running after her. I came, I came, it's just like that, it's just like that. Because it is just like that. This really captures the feeling of this wellspring of happiness, this flowing for no reason other than your mind is well concentrated. So you stay there 5, 10, 15 minutes, and then further, with the fading away of piti, one dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly comprehending, and experiences happiness with the body. And one enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. One drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So, the PT by definition is all gone for the third jhana. Once again, to make the transition, you're in this happy state with a little background piti. You can take a nice deep breath, and as things calm down, find the volume control of the happiness and dial it down to contentment. With the piti gone, the level of excitement and the happiness drops, and it's not so much joy and happiness, as it is contentment, wishlessness, satisfaction. Satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. Okay, you are satisfied. And you're just focused on satisfaction. It says one dwells in equanimity, mindful and clear comprehending. Uh, equanimity really means evenly balanced. Literally, it means standing near. Okay, so you're in a place where, yeah, there's no more excitement, there's no more sense of movement because the PT is gone, and you're just there with it. And it's very nice to be there. The contented feeling is pleasant. But, you know, it, it, you're very even-minded around this pleasure. And mindful and clear comprehending. Well, there was mindfulness earlier, but now the mindfulness has really been cranked up. And one experiences happiness with the body. Uh, usually when people get to the third jhana, the body is just there. It, it, it feels relaxed and steady. I notice that my posture gets really good in the third jhana. And it might be a little sloppy with it before that, but the third jhana it seems to bring it into this pretty nice posture. It says, the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. 
noble ones are the fully awakened ones. Why would fully awakened people be talking about the third jhana? In particular, why would they say one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness? Could it be that full awakening is a happy, equanimous, mindful state? Uh, there seems to be rumors to that effect in other suttas. So perhaps the third jhana is a preview of what full awakening is like, at least from a, what we say, a, a, a sense of what it's like in terms of what it feels like. You don't have all the rest of the characteristics, but happy, equanimous, and mindful sounds pretty good. Again, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So if the first jhana is around your face and the second one's in your heart, the third one is below that, down in the belly. There's a sense of going down as the numbers go up. One, two, three, four. Or is even further down. It's so pervasive going down that if a student says to me, I was in the second jhana and I went down, I don't know whether they meant down the three, in other words, physically, or down to one, which is up physically. I was once uh, working with a neuroscientist in an fMRI. And they wanted to tell me when to transition between the jhanas. I had earphones on to block out some of the sound. And they said, we'll tell you to go up. And I said, no, you can't use the words up and down. You're going to think up means the numbers go up, and I'm going to think up means they go down. Because physically it's up. <coughs> I said, we can do previous and next. And so we did previous and next, and it worked okay. But the down feeling is very distinctive as the numbers go up. So again, you put your attention where the contentment feels the strongest, and you move your attention to the other parts of your body, nice and slow, to spread. Again, uh, we have a simile. Suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that have been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched deep, saturated, and suffused with water, so there would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So the picture is of a lotus pond, and the lotus is coming up out of the mud, but not above the surface of the water. They're sitting there, very still, and completely filled with water. Not bobbing up and down on the surface, and not waving in the breeze, right? This is a very still picture, and the lotuses are completely filled with water. This is also a good simile for the third jhana in that if you're underwater a bit, you 
are more isolated from the world around you. I'm sure you've all experienced this in a swimming pool. You know, you go underwater and yeah, it's really different and all the noise and confusion outside is gone. So this is the sense of the third jhana beginning to take you much further away. Your, your senses don't necessarily drop out completely, right? but there you're just not paying attention to what's going on around you in the same way. Again, you want to be able to hang out there for at least 5 to 10 minutes and preferably 10 to 15. And then you can move on towards the fourth jhana. Further, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of joy and grief, one enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful. It contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Okay, so the abandoning of pleasure and pain and the previous passing of joy and grief. This doesn't mean there was grief or pain in any of the previous jhanas. What's being pointed to is that the fourth jhana is emotionally neutral. No pleasure, no pain, no joy, no grief. There was, certainly was joy in the first two jhanas, and there's pleasure in the first three. <coughs> but this fourth jhana is emotionally neutral. The method for getting there, once again, you can take a nice deep breath. And as you let the energy out, see if there's a sense of things starting to drop down. And if there is, put your attention on the dropping down. And just follow the dropping down until it comes to rest, hopefully in a place of quiet stillness. People talk about the fourth jhana as being the jhana of equanimity. But if I tell you, focus on equanimity, what is that exactly? But if I tell you focus on quiet stillness, you will be focused on equanimity. So better to think of the fourth jhana as the jhana of quiet stillness. What Ayakema said was that in the third jhana, it's like you're sitting in the mouth of a well. You're a little isolated from the world around you. To get to the fourth jhana, let go and drop down the well. The dropping down isn't like free fall. It's more of a drifting down. More like uh, you jump in the swimming pool and drift down to the bottom. Right? Uh, that may also be a simile that, that's helpful. You're in the third jhana, just a bit underwater like those lotuses, and then you drop down to the very bottom. Another simile I found helpful was in the third jhana, I'm in the mouth of a cave. In the fourth jhana, I go deep, deep inside the mouth, and the cave goes down. The, the sense of down 
for the entry into four is pretty pervasive. Most everybody describes that's what's going on. And your object now is quiet stillness. In the first jhana, it's piti sukha. In the second jhana, it's sukha with background piti. The third jhana, it's sukha, no piti, manifesting as contentment. And then the fourth jhana, it's quiet stillness. And it's an emotionally neutral place. It says that the fourth jhana contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. Mindfulness has become a big deal in the last decade. You want to get the top level mindfulness? Fourth jhana, you got mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. It says one sits suffusing one's body with a pure bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure bright mind. So I've been practicing the fourth jhana for a little over a year, and then I came and read out this part of the description, and I'm like, bright? Why does it say bright? Because I'm experiencing it as dark, black. You know, I get into the fourth jhana and my visual field is black. Why does it say bright? I could see the pure. Uh, so I asked her about that. She said, describe your fourth jhana, and so I did. She said, that's fine, don't worry about it. Okay. We have a simile. Suppose a man were to be sitting covered from the head down by a white cloth, so there would be no part of his entire body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure bright mind, so there's no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure bright mind. Okay, the picture's pretty clear. You got some guy sitting there and he's covered with a white sheet. Right? The sense of isolation, yeah, that makes sense because you're isolated from the world around you. But why a white sheet? Why not a black sheet? I had to put this in the I don't know category for 16 years. And then eventually, I was on retreat with Awok, the jhana master from Southern Burma. And he teaches the jhanas as found in the Vasudhimaga, which is not the same as what's in the suttas. Although, any Vasudhimaga jhana teacher will tell you it's exactly the same as in the suttas. But you can read the two for yourself and see that they're actually talking about different states. To get to Powok's jhanas, the commentarial jhanas, you need to generate a nimitta, a circle of light. Remember I said if you get well concentrated, you might get the diffuse white light? Right? Well, for Powok, you've got to get the diffuse white light, and then it's got to form into a circle. Like you're looking into a spotlight or a moon or something like that. It's a bright, stable circle. It takes quite a lot of concentration. So my first retreat with Powak, I had been told in advance, if you want to learn his jhanas, you better devote six months to the process. And this was the one month deal that I was on. So I didn't have much expectation, but I was curious what he was teaching, trying out the uh, his instructions. And I got pretty concentrated. Uh, 
These instructions were the counting to eight, putting the numbers in the gap. He said, when you can do that for half an hour without getting distracted, let me know. We had interviews pretty regularly. And so uh, eventually I got there and I let him know. And he said, oh, good. Drop the counting and continue to sit for the next three or four hours. Okay. <clears throat> so that's what I did. I just kept on sitting. Basically, I was getting into access concentration, as I describe it. He, he, he has a different meaning for the word access concentration. But the state I've described to you is access concentration, using the breath, and just staying there for a long time. Now, what would happen is, eventually, the PT would show up. And it would show up, and it was really violent. I was shaking so much, I was a little worried I was, my head was going to pop off. Right? And it'd last 10, 15 seconds, and then go away. It happened a couple times, so in my next interview, I described what was happening to Powell. I didn't use the word PT, I just described the symptoms. And he says to me, that is gross PT, do not let that happen. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, I used the smile to get the PT going, so maybe I shouldn't smile when I meditate. Just keep a really neutral expression <laughs> on my face. And that worked. You know, I could be in access concentration for hours and the PT wouldn't show up. But sometimes, you know, after doing what he told me, you know, hanging out for three or four hours, waiting for the Nimitz to show up, which wasn't showing up, I would smile. <laughs> when I did, I would get really, really strong PT. <laughs> And it lasts 10, 15, 20 seconds, and then it would calm down, and it would leave me in a place that was, well, definitely second jhana, but far more intense and far more stable than I had ever experienced before. I'm grinning from ear to ear. I got a break your face grin on. It's like, yep, this is second jhana, but wow, it is strong. So I hung out there for five minutes or so, and I was like, yeah, I wonder what third John is like. I couldn't get the third John, because every now and then, you know, the PT would come back. <laughs> and I'd be, okay, I can't get the third John if I've got this PT. So I'd wait a little while longer, and I'd try to, you know, calm things down, but the PT would come <laughs> back. I'm, I'm stuck in second John. Not a bad place to be stuck. And this goes on for, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes, until suddenly there was a feeling of things just sort of going over the edge and dropping down. And I dropped down to a place where I was very contented. The break-your-face grin was gone, just more of a wispy Buddha smile, and this absolutely unshakable contentment. And no more pee time, just there. Contented, satisfied. Okay, stay there five minutes. What's fourth John like? Okay, wipe the smile off my face. <laughs> no, <laughs> stuck in the third John. Yeah, so I'm there for a while, trying to wipe the smile off occasionally. Won't go, and then suddenly it just feels like it goes over the edge. The smile disappears, and I drop down, down, down. 
down always and it settles out in quiet stillness or jhana. Only it was bright white behind my eyelids. Not just white, but bright white. It was just like if I were to go out into an empty field on a bright sunny day and put a sheet over my head and open my eyes. Oh, yeah. No. Exactly what it says here. Which told me that the Buddha and his monks were practicing the jhanas at a deeper level than I had been practicing them before that. And I think about it, it makes sense. So the Buddha and the monks would get up in the morning, they'd chant, they'd meditate, and then they would go on alms round and get their one meal of the day. And they'd come back and eat the food, probably 11 o'clock. And then they would go for the day's abiding, meaning they'd go someplace and meditate till it got dark. I don't think they were doing 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking. <laughs> These were people that didn't have chairs in their culture, and they'd sit cross-legged, and they'd probably be sitting for two, three, four hours at a time, just like I was. And they would get very intense jhanas. Right? So I'm not going to claim I was experiencing exactly what the Buddha was experiencing. But I was certainly a lot closer to it than I had been before. Now, on a retreat like this, where you're trying to learn the jhanas, it's probably not going to be all that useful to sit in access concentration for three or four hours. Besides, I was sitting in my room. There was no bell every half an hour or anything like that. You know, I could just sit there. So, uh, it. It did produce very interesting experience. I learned more about the jhanas, but I never got to the nimbatel on that particular retreat. Uh, see, first you got to stay in access for three or four hours, and then you might get the preliminary nimbatel. If you can sustain that for an hour, then maybe it turns into the real nimbatel. Then if you can sustain that for an hour, then maybe you'll absorb into it, and that's the first. Not in that first first retreat, but how long? But it was very interesting exploring concentration and discovering these deeper jhanas and discovering what actually was going on here in the description. So, why bother? What's the purpose of doing this? When one's mind is thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body, having material form, composed of the four primary elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. The purpose of the jhanas is to generate a mind that's concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, which you can then direct and incline to knowing and seeing. 
doing an insight practice. Knowing and seeing what? This body and this mind. Seeing their impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty nature. We're talking about the uh, four establishments of mindfulness in the morning. We haven't gotten all the way through them yet. But the first one is body, and the second one is Vedna. Well, Vedna, that's mind, right? And the third one is mind state, that's definitely mind. And the fourth one, well, it's phenomena, but most of the phenomena under discussion, as we'll see, are mental. The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for doing the Satipatthana practices. Satipatthana practices, some of them will generate good concentration, but they're all geared to giving you insight, insight into your mind and body. And so, by practicing these jhanas, you get a mind that is more suited for insight practice. It's turbocharging your insight practice. Becoming fully awakened is difficult. If I wanted to cut this wooden table in two, and I had a butter knife, it's going to be a pretty hard slog. I mean, I can make a little dent right away, but to cut it in two with a butter knife, it's going to be hard. If you get a whetstone and you sharpen up the butter knife, put an edge on it, right? You can cut a lot faster. You'll make up all the time you wasted with the sharpening. Right? Of course, it's going to get dull again. You're going to have to sharpen it up again. Keep cutting. But yeah, you could cut the table in two with a butter knife eventually. Probably easier than getting fully awakened. But, all right. It's definitely going to be easier to gain progress on the spiritual path with a concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, naval, wieldy mind than with a dull mind. And so this is what the jhanas are about. Remember, the Buddhist teachings are sila samadhi padma. Clean up your act, learn to concentrate your mind, use your concentrated mind to investigate reality. And the jhanas are the right, the supreme, the appropriate way to concentrate your mind, the appropriate way to generate indistractability. In the Tibetan tradition, they have Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. And he's often depicted having a sword in his hand, which he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is just sharpening Manjushri's sword. Right? You don't want to make the mistake of just sharpening, right? Because eventually you got no sword left. Right? So it's not about just doing jhanas. It's about getting your mind sharp and then wielding the sword to cut the bonds of ignorance. You wield the sword by doing insight practice. As I mentioned, it does appear that the world revolves around us. Doing jhana practice has the side effect of getting your ego functioning, your ego constructing, to quiet down. Everybody is aware that you have to think yourself up, emote yourself up. You've probably heard that. It's not self-stuff. 
Now, you don't really have a little guy behind the eyeballs pulling the levers. It's just a thing you make up. Well, you can't get to the fourth jhana making up your ego. It's like kind of go sit in the corner, get back to you later. So when you come out, not only do you have the indistractability, the imperturbability, but you're looking at the world from a less egocentric perspective. And since the world doesn't actually revolve around me, you have a much better chance of seeing what's going on instead of, is this something I want to get? Is this something I need to push away? All about me. So this is the purpose of the jhanas. These are the first four. Any questions? So was the last simile with the with the white cloth? Is that from the original sutta? Yes. So how how do you, I guess unless I'm confused, it's like how did you reconcile that that um, Pawa's teaching was consistent with the original sutta? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I missed something. <laughs> right. I cannot reconcile the description of the jhanas in the commentaries, which Pawa follows, with the description of the jhanas in the suttas. Just doesn't go. They're, they're different states. So you have the eight sutta jhanas, and you have the eight Vasudhi Maga jhanas, 16 different states. And of course, you've got the nine Abhidhamma jhanas, and you've got the four Pure Land jhanas, and you've got the four stages of awakening referred to as jhanas. And you, 37 states, 38 states I found that go by the name jhana. Right? There's a lot of confusion out there. But yeah, the jhanas described in the commentaries are not the same as what's found in the suttas. And there is no way to reconcile them if you'll actually sit down and read the two descriptions. Notice for each of the jhanas you drink, steep, saturate, and suffuse your body. There's bodily awareness. And you can't do that if you don't have a body. You're not aware of it. In the commentarial jhanas, there's no bodily awareness. No body, no sounds, no passage of time. You're just gone. So yeah, there's no way to reconcile it. It doesn't stop people from saying it's reconciled. But yeah. So how for lay people like us, how how far can we go in sharpening the knife before we start looking inside practice? Yeah, so how much sharpening, how much time to spend working with the jhanas? While you're on this retreat, you probably spend a lot of time learning the jhanas, <coughs> unless of course you've already learned them. And then you just get them going again before you start your insight practice. In general, I would say spend about half of the meditation period working on concentration and half working on insight. So if you go home and you're going to sit for an hour, spend about a half an hour getting concentrated and then spend a half an hour doing insight practice. That's a general guideline. Right? So once you've learned the jhanas, then yeah, you just step through them. And yeah, it's possible to step through all eight jhanas in half an hour. Just gotta know them really well, be well practiced at it. And then you got another half an hour to do your insight practice, which I guarantee you 
is going to give you more insights than if you had sat down and just done the exact same insight practice for a full hour. So about 50-50 mixture of concentration, whatever degree. I mean, maybe at home you're only getting access. You know, do the concentration for about half the time and the insight for the other. The, the detail in the simile for the first jhana where the soap doesn't trickle at all. Right. Do you associate that with anything in the experience or that's useful as a teaching tool? It's always just seemed a strange detail to me. Yeah, it always seemed a little strange detail to me. <laughs> but I think what it's saying is that you've got it exactly right. You've got the water to totally permeate the soap so that it's, you know, there are no dry spots in the middle of it. But you didn't put in too much water such that it's trickling. You've got it just right. And I think it's that sense of, yeah, just get it just right. It's, it's being aimed at. Uh, but the commentaries talk about this and they say, yeah, they, the water totally permeates the soap flakes, just like the PT suka totally permeates your body. So, yeah, the PT suka is not going to flow out onto the floor, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about the PT suka trickling. But yeah, it's a kind of an interesting detail. It may be in there because of either rhyming or alliteration. Uh, I never looked up the poly for that particular part. But remember in the fourth jhana, with the passing of pleasure and pain and the previous passing of joy and grief, when you look at the words for pleasure and pain and joy and grief, there's a lot of alliteration and rhyming in there. Alliteration and rhyming is very helpful for the oral tradition. So that may be part of what's going on there with the doesn't trickle. This is just a wild guess on my part. I have to look up the poly to see. Um, do some people kind of specialize in PT and other people maybe sukha? I mean, some people can manifest one or the other maybe. Yeah, not. I would say the majority of people manifest both. But it's indeed true that there are some people who find it easier to get the PT going and some sukha comes along with it. And there are other people that find that it's easier to get the sukha going and there's a little PT in the background. Uh, I remember the first person I talked to who said that, yeah, he used metta as his access method, but he always wound up going into second shot because metta and sukha love and happiness are very similar. And so if you use metta as your access method, often you'll find it does take you into the second genre rather than the first genre. And so part of it is how you're wired, and it's also part of it is how, what, what access method you're using as to where it may take you. But yeah, we, we are all wired differently. So if you find sukha easier, should should you try to flip it, look for the PT or, or you know, um, yeah. so stir it up a little bit or? Yeah, so if you find that you're, you're trying to get to the first jhana and the sukha comes and there's not much PT there, then all right, you've arrived at the second jhana. Stabilize that a bit. And then you can try and go up to the first jhana. 
And the way to do that is to take the happiness and make it really happy, like really happy. <laughs> and it'll pop up to a more yeah. piti, yeah. Uh, centric place. It's actually good to learn the jhanas one, two, three, four, three, two, one. Or actually, when you're learning it, one, one, two, one, one, two, three, two, one, you know, etc. And when you get really good at it, you can go one, two, three, two, three, four, three, four, three, two, three, two, one. Yeah, and play it up and down. By going forwards and backwards, it gives you, well, at least for two and three, two views of the jhana coming down to it from the preceding jhana or coming back up to it from the following jhana. And it gives you more of a sense of exactly what's the essence of that jhana. Like if you're walking in the woods and you always go the same way, you come to a clearing, you don't notice it so much. But if sometime you ever come to that clearing from a different direction, you're like, okay, yeah, I've been here before. You, you really examine it. And this is what happens when you're coming at jhanas two and three from both directions. Um, there's a newer jhana book, I think it came out in the last few years, by a Korean gentleman. And he trained uh, under the second gentleman you mentioned. Uh, yeah, using Nimitta. And he talks about the phenomena. I was trying to understand. Uh, he says when the Nimitta, the way he was taught, when the Nimitta shows up, still keep the attention on the breath. Right. Until the breath and Nimitta become one. Yes. And that's, I couldn't comprehend. The only way you're going to comprehend Pawok's instruction <laughs> is to go on retreat with Pawok. <laughs> you better set aside six months or more and go try it out. But apparently what happens is this Nimitta first appears in front of you and then as you get more concentrated, it becomes right there where your breathing is. Okay? And then you just absorb into it. The whole idea is to absorb into the nimitta. And usually you can't absorb into it if it's out here. You can, right? But if you stay with it long enough, it will come in closer and then it's very easy to just disappear inside of it with no body, no sounds, no passage of time. So whoever this is, they're describing Pawak's method accurately. Do you understand Pawak as having deeper jhanas or just totally different states entirely? Both. They are indeed deeper because you've got to get really concentrated to get there, and they're in and they're entirely different. So it's not the same as what's described in the sutras, only more. It's different states and definitely more. Yeah, I would recommend against doing anything 
it brings energy when you're trying to go to sleep. So you, you don't, I mean, you don't even have to meditate at all. You can just go to sleep, right? But uh, definitely don't do anything that tends to bring a lot of energy here. Yeah, you just get insomnia. And in particular, if you're using the breath to generate PT, if you try and do it while you're going to sleep, yeah, it's going to be very counterproductive. Anything else? Okay, we'll take a short break and then I'll be guided. Perfect.